can't tell if the chemistry is good by looking at it. It wasn't clear yesterday. For the last time, the saltwater pool is a chlorine pool. This is the Talking Pools podcast with pool pros from every region in the country. If it happens in a pool, you'll hear about it here. Everything from tips and hacks to the latest tricks and trends, breaking news. We lay it on the line. We tell it like it is because we think you deserve to know. Join the Council for the Model Aquatic Health Code, aka CMAC. CMAC is a member-driven organization that keeps the Model Aquatic Health Code sustainable, current, and complete. Your expertise is needed. Learn more at CMAC.org. That's C-M-A-H-C.org. Hey, everyone. It's Kelly with Kelly and Dan on Talking Pools. Hey, everybody. This is Dan. Welcome to, uh, I think... February, maybe, or the end of January, maybe. What is it now? I lose I track. Think we'll be, I think we'll be the first week of February. <clears throat> I think I think we're actually, this episode is going to be January 31st. So we're right at the. Yes. Crust. And the nice thing about that is we're actually in Chicago to the point that we can start counting down the days to when it'll actually be a little bit sunny, a little bit warm. Uh, you'll be able to get outside and do some things and. Um, you know, as we head into like November, the holidays kind of get you through. But once you're past first a year, then you're like, uh, yep. Now it just sucks to live here. Oh <laughs> and, no! And at this point, we're we're kind of there. Like, okay, we you know, we're we're gonna be seeing spring here right <laughs> around the corner. Let's start counting the days. But often with that, February is is often a month that we get real heavy wet snow. Okay. Uh, I, I can't remember if it was last year, year before my wife and I were out of town and I got the snowblower already. It's in the garage. I fired it up beforehand. It's I changed oil, new plug, gas. It's ready to go. Hit the door, open the button. It's electric start. I said, and my daughter's, she's 21 now. She was 20, I think. I think it was last year. Anyway, you can do this, right? Um, she knows how to use it, all that. So we're gone. A couple days later, yeah, we get like... 14 inches or something of this heavy, wet, horrible <laughs> snow. So she goes out to start it. The damn thing won't start. She's she's FaceTiming us. I can't remember where we were, but she's FaceTiming us. Shovel this. And she's like, what am I doing wrong? I, you know, it, it won't start. And I'm like, well, okay, do this, do this. No, nothing, nothing. Called good friend across the street who who's very handy. He owns an HVAC company and everything. So I'm like, hey, Ron, could you run over and just start it for her, get her going? He couldn't start the damn thing. <laughs> so she ended up shoveling the drive. Ron helped her shovel enough to get her car out. And, and it was kind of a mess then. But anyway, so yeah, February, you never know what we might get in February. But we're still able to count down to spring. So that's okay. So sometimes in February, we'll get what's called fake spring, where it feels like spring uh-huh. for like a week or two. And then it'll go back to winter. Oh, okay. And everyone's yep. like, oh, spring's here. We're done with winter. Yep. No. <laughs> yeah. This, well, this is the fake spring. We'll probably get another fake spring, and then we'll get, you know. Yeah. And we've been real fortunate this winter in Chicago. Christmas was very, very cold. You know, with the wind, it was, I think, down to 30 below the weekend of Christmas. But the month of January has been above normal. I think today it was 47 degrees. Um, oh, it's been raining. Warm. 
you know, we, we've had days where you feel like you're living in London or something where, and I'm <laughs> sure you've got the same thing, right? You know, oh, like yeah. 12, 13 days in a row, you don't see the sun. Yep. <laughs> so, but I also think that's why it's a little warmer. I think when, when the sun comes out that the, those clouds help to keep the heat in, yep. it's like a blanket for us. And when the sun comes, then the cold comes. So it's a trade-off, but anyway, we're counting down. So hopefully oh, yeah. I'm, fingers I'm crossed it's for... early spring. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm still busy. Like, but I'm not like booked out two weeks. It's more of, okay, I'm busy this week. Let's start. Today's Monday. We're going to start building next week. You know, by Friday, I'm booked out for the next week. That's just how I am during winter. But then when spring hits, it's like, I'm out two, three weeks. Yeah. And to be honest, I don't like being booked out like that. No. Because, you know, when I get warranties or like one of my regular customers, I want to be able to to squeeze them in. And yep. so, you know, that's where I, I like being just booked out for a week and then able to. A build week is it. very manageable. We, in the heat of COVID, we were, uh, there were times that we were eight to 10 weeks out and, you know, with our relatively short season, that's just, that's unacceptable. Because of that, we stopped taking new clients for a lot of the different services that we offer um, about a year and a half ago. You know, like our maintenance, for example, our weekly maintenance, we stopped taking on new clients for that and and uh, created a wait list. People are like, no, we really want you to do it and this and that. And, and with all the new pools being built around the country and certainly in our market, that feeds into it. But, uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Being a week out is is it's easy to keep things moving and keep people happy and move stuff yeah. to take care of emergencies and that and then kind of stuff with like the rain we've been having if it's just too bad for me to go out it gives me an opportunity to kind of rearrange things because you, yeah. you know i the weather people they try their best at predicting what's going to happen but most of the time yeah. they're not correct at timing no. at least like no. 100% chance of rain, but not till eight o'clock at night, yeah. um, you know, but they'll say it's a hundred percent chance of rain, you know, on your prediction for the next 10 days. Right. So yeah, that's yeah. why I like, I like to have it a little bit of a, a buffer there, but yeah. Hey, you can only do so much. We're going to be doing a series of episodes on electricity. Right. So today's episode of this the four-part series we are going to talk about safety because we feel that that is number one when you do electrical um if you're not safe and you don't know how to be safe you know things can happen right but our very first point go ahead jump into it sorry no you're fine our very first point is if you do not feel comfortable with electricity or electrical do not do it Right. Turn us off right now. Skip to next week's episode. No. <laughs> Listen and uh, find someone who can help you become more comfortable and more experienced with it. Electricity is not something to play with and and to uh, jump in without any knowledge. And to that point, I'm going to throw out a, a story that's going to kind of throw myself under the bus. Yeah. But many, many years ago, I, I think I've said a, too often that I've been doing this for for a long time, but uh, 36 years or something like that. I was, I want to say 19, 20 years old at the time working in the industry to work my way through college. And I'd always had an aptitude for electrical work um, 
around the house at home. I'd work with dad wiring things, replacing switches, outlets, stuff like that. So I, I was familiar with electricity and, and how it flows and how to connect things and stuff like that. But um, with that, I was sent out to install an Intermatic dual timer subpanel box on a new pool that was being constructed. And this timer box was in a garage and uh, I had to run the conduit and the, the you know, liquid tight, seal tight, whatever you want to call it, the flexible conduit and wire everything in. And I got to the point where I was ready to pop the breakers in the box. And I said, uh, I went to the door and, and knocked on the door and got the, the wife was home and she said, oh, what do you need? I said, I need to go down to the basement, make sure the breaker is off to the, to the garage. She said, oh, I, I shut that off before you got here today because I knew you were coming and, and that's off. Don't worry about it. It's off. I said, okay. So I went back over the box and this was the middle of summer. I think it might've been July. It was really hot. The garage was kind of muggy and my hands are sweaty and whatever. And as I went to slide this double pole breaker in, my hand slipped off the breaker as I'm going to lock it in place. And I grabbed right onto the the power bus bars in the sub panel box. Well, the breaker in the house wasn't off. So I immediately got hit with 230 volts of current running through. Uh, my hand was positioned so that when I got zapped, muscles contract and it caused me to grab onto those power bars in that box. And I had to use my, my left arm to pry my right arm off of that bus bar um, or the bus bars rather. And I sort of stumbled outside and, and sat down for a bit to sort of recoup in that. But uh, I, I think one of the things that only got me through that was the fact that I was 19 or 20 years old, as opposed to, you know, being where I am and now. I, I don't know that I'd get through something to that extent. So, you know, not being experienced enough or certainly being timid or 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 afraid of electricity is not something then you, you want to jump into. And, uh, you know, as, as far as our, one of our topics today with safety, um, back then at 19, 20 years old, I didn't own a voltmeter back then. Voltmeters were, were mostly analog, you know, just a little needle that moved and they were extremely expensive. Uh, I, I want to say the first voltmeter I bought later that year, um, because of this incident, it cost me a little over a hundred dollars, and it was something that you get free with a cup of coffee today if you go into the local, <laughs> uh, you know, Home Depot or something. But it, um, you know, you think about what a hundred dollars meant in what was that? That was probably 1988, I'm guessing, uh, compared to what that hundred dollars would mean today, some 35 or whatever years later. It was it was a lot of money, so I didn't have one. Um, I did. Oh, my mine. Wait one minute, you West Coast pool gal. Interrupting is Andrea's gig. But you need them. Yeah, they are. And, you know, today you can go out and spend, uh, honestly, you could spend $10 on a voltmeter that will give you some some good information. It may not be quite as accurate as a $180 fluke or, or a $300 meter or something like that, but it'll definitely give you some good information. And, you know, in this case, had I had a voltmeter when she said the breaker was off, I, I should have had a voltmeter and gone straight to the sub panel and tested to make sure there was no power present there. 
before I ever started doing anything. The fact that I didn't get shocked running the wires, pulling the wires through the conduits, and you know, you, you always end up with a couple of feet hanging out of that box, and I'm in that box pulling wires and everything else, and you know, in my mind, it's it's a safe environment. There's no power in there, but it wasn't. The the, the as I I wish I would have. T- tapped it, you know, <laughs> pulling wires <laughs> up my hand would have been the other direction to that bus bar that was energized and I wouldn't have clamped down on it and it would yeah. have been a quick zip and be, ooh, hey, wait a minute, there's a problem here. Um, so anyway, I screwed up many years ago and I've, I, I don't think I've ever done something similar since. Um, maybe I have, not that I recall though, but that one stuck with me for a long, long time and probably will forever. So the first thing my dad ever taught me was if you touch the electrical, even if you use your meter, even if you use whatever tools to determine there's no electricity, still always hit it with the back of your hand. Yeah. That way I will not do what you did and grab on. It will actually push your hand off. Yeah. Everything as your muscles contract, your your arm will pull away as, as it flexes at the elbow and your hand will close in away from you know, the pump motor or whatever it is that you, you happen to touch. But, uh, you know, definitely the, the back of your hand is a safer way. But, um, you know, using a voltmeter to, to try to verify things in advance, certainly look at the circuit breaker yourself. You know, if this woman, if I would have been insistent upon, I'm sorry, I, I have to go into the basement and see it myself just to be sure. But even with that, um, a lot of times breakers aren't marked right. You know, you might be looking in a panel that uh, says pool and turn that breaker off, but you find someone's been in that box moving stuff around and that pool is no longer in that position. So even though you shut the pool breaker off, you still want to go outside and check with your meter to make sure there's no power at that component on the pad. I had at one time where... No one lived in the house. Uh, the, the lady had passed away. The family sold the house. And I went to the control panel and it said pool. So I turned that breaker off, go back to the equipment, test it with my voltmeter, still had power. Well, come to find out, there was another breaker box inside the garage. And that was where, which had been actually added later. And that's where the breaker really was. And luckily I had my meter. And even though I turned the breaker off, obviously it wasn't it because there's still power. If I would have not done that and thought, oh, I turned the breaker off. Yeah. Would have been zapped a lot. Yeah. And unfortunately, when I get zapped, I say mother effer every single time. So, you know, (laughs) if I've, I've gone electrocuted. Yeah. Well, there, you know, I've I've seen things through the years where you you have 230 volts at an equipment pad, but 110 volts is coming from one area of the house, and 110 volts is coming from another area of the house. You know, coming from the main panel in the basement is a 110 feed, and then later they decided they wanted to add more equipment or or whatever and they pulled from the sub panel in the garage because it was easier to get another get the other leg out there so you you actually have two different sources which is completely asinine and uh you know against every code and everything else you could ever imagine but dumb shit like that happens and you know again that the safety aspect of 
okay, kill the power when you think it's off, then carefully open things up, get your meter and, and check voltage with your meter. And with that, you need to check a number of things with the meter. You know, if we're talking about like, say, let's say a pump, you usually have, uh, you'll have a hot, a neutral on the ground or two hots on the ground, right? L1, L2 and, and a ground on yeah. that. You could, if you put your meter across L1 and L2 and get zero, that doesn't mean that there's no power there. Correct. Because if a breaker is turned off, a double pole 230 volt breaker is turned off, but only half of it disengages, the power that's being sent out that other half is going to cancel out your reading on your meter going between L1 and L2. And you'll get zero. And this is something that it's actually good to know for troubleshooting purposes as well, because breakers can fail that way when they're on, that you get power out of just one leg, not both. And the pump's not working. Well, the breaker's on. That's got to be, well, but I don't have any power here. Oh, it's, and you naturally would think maybe the wires have been compromised or something. So in addition to going between L1 and L2, take your meter and go between L1 and ground. And then also go between L2 and ground. And try to verify in any combination that you have zero volts. If you end up going between L1 and ground and you've got 115 volts, typically between L2 and ground on newer motors, you'll still have that same 115 volts. On older motors, you may have zero. Um, but then when you go between L1 and L2, you'll you'll likely end up with no reading whatsoever, um, a zero reading which it's it's not accurate. So unless you want to maybe use your tongue to try to see if there's voltage there. No, don't do that. Don't use your tongue. Do that on 9-volt batteries only. No. Um, but uh, so, you know, something there to think about in terms of safety is it's not just a matter of checking between the two power feeds. Uh, check between every combination of those wires that you can. Um and also be careful. So many of us know that uh, in, in when we're dealing with electricity, there are different colors of casing on the wires, right? We've got white, black, green, that's common. Red is common. We might see yellows and grays and blues and, and all these different things. Well, they're not always hooked up the way they should be color code wise. I've seen green oh, yeah, wires used supplying power. Which, you know, you, if you look in the box and you see green wires and you go, oh, that's ground. Yeah, it should be. It, it really should be, but it may not be. So, again, that's we're using the voltmeter to, to try to confirm things. You might even take the voltmeter and go between the three wires and, and another point of what you believe to be a ground. Go to the outside of the motor casing, scratch it a bit with your, your meter probe and and try it there or or, uh, you know, maybe even the, the bonding wire or the conduit or something like that. A gas pipe, if you've got a gas heater nearby that you can reach. Um, something, if there's a metal pipe going into the ground, into earth, and you can get a scratch it up to get a good contact from your probe to it and then go between all three of the wires and that point to try to see if there's any current present. Again, I, I've been zapped in a bad way, and I, I certainly would not like to see anyone else go through the same mistake that I did. Hey, what are you up to? Good. Yeah? 
Michael's trying to get are, me. He is? Yeah. Are you helping Mom take care of him tonight, though? I've got these slippery feet. Do you have socks on your hands? Yeah, I got socks on my feet. On your feet? Those are feet? Yeah, I it looks like a hand. A hand. Oh my gosh, you got Scooby Doo on your shirt. Yep. I got my mom's socks that go slip and slide. Yeah, I like Scooby Doo on your shirt better than socks on your hands. Zoinks. So you like Scooby Doo? Who you like better, Scooby or Shaggy? Hold on a second. What's that? Poppy? Poppy? I can't see the bottom of it. Pull it back a little bit. It is P-O-P-P-Y. Poppy? Yeah. I don't... Okay. Oh, so now you're back. I, I was talking with him. We were talking about Scooby-Doo and the fact that he had your socks on his hands. <laughs> He's entertaining. That's okay. So, watch Rudy will put part of that in here. Um, <laughs> okay, so we'll start. I was gonna say how I had a a box with only purple wire. There you go. All right, go ahead and say that. Okay. So that same job I mentioned earlier, where one breaker said pool, but in reality, but in reality. It was in the garage. This same box had all purple wire. It had it for the lives. It had it for the grounds. It had it for the neutrals. On top of it, none of it was taped off. So normally, if you have to, absolutely have to, you tape the wire with the color it should be. Right. This was not. I had I had to start from ground one. Oh, jeez. So now this was in a, in a community that at one point didn't have a hardware store. And the closest hardware store is probably about 45 minutes to an hour away. So, you know, yeah. some electrician, that's all they had on them, which I don't know why they had purple wire on them Yeah. in 12 gauge. But and you'll learn about gauges next week. But, yes, that was definitely a safety issue where I could. Like, it's a liability for me to leave the box like that right. when no one knows what's what. You kind of had to, obviously, you could figure it out, but what if the next person didn't have a brain? Yeah, and, you know, it's always a lot easier when you're servicing and troubleshooting. If things are done properly, it helps you get your job done. So if you walk up to a box and it has hots that are black, neutrals that are white, grounds that are green, and you, you know, your mind goes instantly to that's what it's supposed to be. It just speeds along the troubleshooting of what what's going on and also where things going and, and all that kind of stuff to have a box full of nothing but purple wire. That's that's crazy. You know, you mentioned taping the ends. So that's something that, uh, you know, if those of you listening aren't, aren't familiar with, it's not that uncommon. And I carry even with me, although I'm not in the field hardly at all, but um tape of different colors. I've got white tape, green tape, black tape, red tape, yellow tape, blue tape. And, uh, you know, there there may be an instance where you have to use a wire for something other than what the original 
casing on the wire color matches up to. But if you've got tape that you can indicate by wrapping the, the you know, I always try to wrap, wrap the last two or three inches of that yeah. wire with, you know, if I'm if I have to use a green wire for a neutral, for example, I'm going to wrap the end of that wire with white tape. So it's as obvious as possible. The next person in that box is going to see the white tape on the end of it and hopefully understand what I what I ended up doing with that. Things happen. And I totally and- agree with the two inches, because if you just do like a little tab, that can come off so easily yeah. over time. Right. Right. But yeah, the next person in the box is going to re terminate that wire and strip it right off and they're not going to yep. care about what you had done. You know, they or maybe they don't even have tape on them to redo that tape. Right. Right. That's what I mean. So they just. It's it's just gone and over. So, no, I, I definitely put a, a good two to three inches onto it and, and try to make it real clear. But, you know, we do have still some shortages in different parts of the country. Um, I, I know myself, I went up to a family uh, cottage in northern Wisconsin last summer and had to do some rewiring in the garage and out to a, a fish shack. And the all they had was black, white, and green. And I needed to run uh, two complete separate feeds from GFI breakers in the garage out to this fish shack. So at, how do you know which wire is the black wire that you want when you got two or three or four black wires in a, in a piece of pipe? So the, the tape was in my toolbox because I took it with me up there. And I'm like, that's fine. <laughs> I'll buy rolls of black and white and green, and that's all I'm going to use. I can't get yellow and purple and blue like I would back in, in the Chicago market. And I use the tape on the ends to mark them so that I knew it was for my purpose mostly. Yeah. So I knew after these wires were pulled through, which one was which on which end to to be able to use them for that. I didn't use, you know, whites were always neutral and, and black was always uh, hot. But but just to be able to know which end of that, you know, I had, I think, four black wires in the pipe. So I had yeah. one with blue tape, one with red tape, one with yellow tape, and uh, one that had no tape. So I could identify them. So, and, you know, that falls into safety, too, where by knowing what the wires are after you pull them through, you're not going to cross them and mix them up and, yep. and not remember what you were doing on one end by the time you get to the other end. Even if it's only a three-foot piece of flexible conduit from a timer box to a pump motor, um, you know, if you get it all hooked up in the timer and you got two blacks and a green, but one of those blacks is truly a neutral, well, yeah. get some white tape, keep it in your in your toolbox or whatever you're using, your backpack, your tool bag, whatever it is, and, and mark it before you get to it mark it when you pull it off the spool of wire before you pull it through the pipe mark both ends of it and then you it's there's no doubt as to what you're working with and then no knowing where those colors are supposed to go so so like white wire white wire needs to go to the neutral bar green wire green wire needs to go to the ground well, and and with that it also depends does the white wire actually go to the neutral bar yeah or, what if it goes onto the breaker it may go right to the breaker if it's a GFI breaker at that point mm-hmm. um, with the pigtail from the breaker going to the neutral bus bar, which that is the biggest electrician error that we find wired up hot tubs and, and pool pumps and everything else is, you know, everybody has somebody, everybody knows somebody, right? So uh, we, we sell a lot of hot tubs 
and oh my buddy's an electrician my brother's an electrician <laughs> i'm an electrician and and they wire it up themselves and then they fill it up and they call us up yelling and screaming it. yeah right right google <laughs> taught me what i needed at least it's google and not uh you know something else but um <laughs> and i wired it up and i filled it up and i turned it on and it tripped the breaker instantly and they're yelling and screaming all mad because this brand new, you know, 10, 12, 15, $18,000 hot tub doesn't run. And of course <laughs> they're having a party tomorrow with a bunch of people coming to use this brand new hot tub. If not tonight. <laughs> if not tonight. Right. So you end up sending someone out there and the first thing we always do is open up the GFI box and we find the neutral wire instead of going to the breakers on the neutral bus bar and the pigtail from the breakers on the neutral bus bar. And that will cause a GFI to trip falsely. And we move that neutral wire from the bus bar that, that is feeding the hot tub over to the breaker, to the neutral load that's clearly marked on every GFI breaker, mm-hmm. and uh, turn it on, and all of a sudden it starts running. And, uh, you know, sometimes we're considered heroes. Most of the time we're, we're you know, not able to charge for that because these people just spent – 10,000 or more on a hot tub and we, you know, want them to pass our good name along to their right. friends and that when they're deciding. So we just suck that up and call it cost of doing business. But that is one of the biggest mistakes that we see in the, in the wiring end of things. Like you said, the wire wires have a place, they need to be in the place. And sometimes electricians don't put them in the right place because they're not exactly sure what a GFI is all about. Right. Well, and in some situations, you you don't need to use a GFI breaker, which I will mention in our next episode. But, yeah, just know where the wires go. Know what the colors represent. If you have red or if you have black, those are usually all live co- uh, colors. So those will be things that go to your breaker or your relay. Um, try to stick to the color schemes. What I would suggest for anybody that's learning about electricity, plumbing, uh, way things work is get a notebook and tab it. So I have a notebook for all my Hayward stuff. I tap pumps, controllers, you know, heaters, whatever. And as I go, when I learn new things to help me do it, I make notes. So here would be a great one for a notebook on wiring is what does the colors represent? You know, there's a lot of colors. It's not just red, black, white, and green. There's also red green. and yellow. And you you, you need to know what those colors are, are for and what they represent. Because sometimes the colors will represent instead of residential, which is um, single phase. You have commercial, which can be, I believe it's called two phase. Three, three phase. Actually, three phase. Yeah, sorry. Right. Three, mm-hmm. three phase. And the colors represent that. So when you go to a box and you see these colors, your mind should automatically think, okay, why are these colors here? Is this going to be three-phase electricity? But then there's ways to test it. Right. And with the colors, too, so that you can Google and find, you know, color charts, if you will, for electrical wires. And, and you know, it's pretty easy to print it out and throw it in your tab notebook so that You've got all these different colors, but there are certain colors that are often used for certain things, too. You know, a blue or a yellow wire often is the indication of a switched leg. 
So, you know, it's pretty common that that good electricians wiring a a Jandy or Hayward or Pentair control system will come off a circuit breaker with black or red and go up to a relay's line side. And out of that relay, the power coming out of the load side of that relay going to the device, the pump or whatever it is, might be blue or yellow or even purple is often used as a switch like, you know, where, where red and black is commonly used for for a main feed off of a breaker um you get switched and if you go to newer houses built and again when good electricians are doing it you'll find that a light switch on the wall will have a black wire going to it but coming out of it will be a blue wire that's going up to the light on the ceiling or the ceiling fan or or you'll have a a you know, if you got a single switch that powers a ceiling fan that has a light combo kind of thing, you'll have a black wire going into the switch and you'll have a yellow that goes up to the ceiling fan and a blue that goes up to the light on that ceiling fan, um, separating those two feeds. So having this chart, that, again, you can Google it and, and we'll try to get some charts and, and put them in the comments below this video under the Talk, Talking Pools Facebook group when you see it. I said video. I just said video. Am I old? What am I talking about? <laughs> Below this podcast. <laughs> Christ. Um, so that, you know, maybe, you, you know, we'll find them and put them there and you guys can can click them and save them on your phone, save them on your devices, print them out, put them in your tab notebooks, all that kind of stuff. So you got them for reference. It, on the troubleshooting end of it, and that's a lot of what us, uh, you know, service people do, It's it's a lot of times helpful when electricians follow what, is common practice and it speeds up your process of breaking down where things are going wrong. Kelly and Dan will be right back after these messages. Have you heard there is a group of pool service professionals nationwide that are here to help grow and protect your business? The Independent Pool and Spa Service Association, known as IPSA, is here to help you. By joining the largest trade organization created by and for pool and spa service techs, you gain access to industry networking opportunities, exclusive educational offerings, IPSA's Tech for Tech route coverage, and more. So be independent, supported, and part of a professional community. Go to IPSSA.com to learn how to be a member of IPSA today. So another thing would be the tool, other tools that we would use. So we talked about having a uh, meter, a volt meter. Um, I don't know what it's called. You probably do. I just call it my electrical pen. But <laughs> if you turn it on and you push it and you tap it somewhere where you want to see if there's electricity, it will beep and light up if yep. it has electricity. If it doesn't, nothing will happen. I do find that to be if you're just looking to see if there's power quickly, that's handy to have in your pocket um and then once you know that there's power then use your voltmeter to see exactly how much is there so let's say you're on a route and you your pump won't turn on or your booster pump won't turn on or your light won't turn on you just want to see if there's like electricity coming from the relay or let's say it's a yellow face timer you just want to see if there's electricity coming from the timer that's a quick way to see yes there's electricity or no um, yep. 
And again, that's like when you're looking for something quick. So that I recommend getting also. Also getting um, tools with rubber handles. Right. So like um, the ones I really like are the Klein tools. Klein is and great. So I get their, their 11 in one multi, you know, screwdriver and it's rubber ended. And then I get their low, what I call the low voltage multi-tool, which is mm-hmm. the skinnier ones for your um, four pin connector pieces and stuff like that. Um, from my understanding, you want the rubber ends just in case it does t- touch electricity, you won't get electrocuted. Yeah. Everything you work with around electricity should have rubber ends and, and you want to maintain those rubber ends. So, you know, even if you're using channel locks that you're going to tighten conduit fittings with, they should be, the handle should be rubber coated, insulated to protect that if there's any straight, you know, you're dealing with conduit. Is there something down the line that's shorted against the conduit and is energizing that conduit if you're using the rubber handled tools? But then with that, you know, I've seen all too often where that that same pair of channel locks is used to beat a stainless belly band clamp onto a filter later in the day to to snug yeah. it down. And you use the rubber side of it because you don't want to mar up that band as you're hitting it, right? right? So, but then when you do that, you're chipping into the rubber and exposing the metal handle beneath it. Y- you can't do that. You you need to, and and I actually recommend to our technicians that they have two sets of tools a set of tools that are used for when they're doing electrical work and a set of tools that are used for everything else because those electrical tools should be cared for in a little bit better manner than we tend to care for the ones we're using when we're doing plumbing or we're doing masonry or we're doing, you know, name your your whatever it may be. And yeah. having insulated handles that are in good shape is, is a huge, huge, uh, it, it, you, you want to have the right tool for the right job but you want to have a safe tool for the right job too. Right. Um, so bonding, bonding, not even all electricians understand. I've noticed. Yeah. Bonding is a, an interesting thing. And, and for this to be, uh, you know, I, I think we'll probably revisit this in, in the next few episodes too, because it's sort of an important thing that's often misunderstood. Um, Bonding is not grounding and grounding is not bonding. They're two different purposes. And, you know, we, we, I've often long time ago would argue with inspectors on our new construction sites who would uh, say that, you know, the bonding wire at the equipment had to be hooked to a grounding rod. And we'll, you know, we'll talk about that later, but um, you know, the, the bonding, which you see it mostly on the equipment, of commonly a bare number eight copper wire, solid copper wire is what's used, although there are instances of stranded green cased wire that's, that's acceptable too. But it's connected to everything metal at the equipment pad on the outside of the piece of equipment. So your your bond wire on your pump motor is not inside where your hot neutral and ground wires are connected. It's on the outside of the metal casing, right? And then it'll it'll run from that pump motor. And what else does it go to on the pad? We're hooking it up to a bunch of stuff, right? Yeah. 
No, we you're you're hooking up to everything electrical. So your pump, your heater, your booster pump. Um, what else? Even stuff that isn't at the equipment. So you have your handrails, your diving boards, your slides if they have any metal. Metal. Connected. <clears throat> everything. To it. Yeah. Um, everything metal. Yeah, I'm sure we we see it all too often where a pump motor gets replaced or a pump gets replaced. Yep. And the, the wire's not long enough. The wire's not long enough, or the bonding lug is corroded to a point that you can't unscrew it from yep. the current device to get it off to easily put it on the next device. Our all of our technicians carry bonding wire bonding lugs what what we call burn d's split bolt connectors on the truck so that uh you know it's just like carrying us a, a spool of green white and black wire um it's another thing that we need to have to be able to know we can get a job done those bonding wires are often super tight and yep. your new pump motor is a little bit longer or the pumps in a little bit different position and that or like you said you can't screw the old one off so you have to cut it yeah right right and if you've got a split nut on the truck and and we'll we'll try to remember to put a split nut uh example in the comments below too um a split nut is like a little brass nut imagine a bolt and a nut but the bolt is cut down the center of the threads mm -hmm. vertically so it creates a slot. The nut will still thread on with that gap in between. So you, you use that split nut to go over the old bond wire, put a new piece of bond wire in there and tighten the, the nut down on it. And now take your length of wire over to the new motor's bonding lug location and connect it. Um, bonding is truly what, what I consider as a primary safety device for shorts relative to a pool. And many people will look at like a GFI breaker as being that safety device, but a GFI breaker, um, it's a manufactured thing, can fail. Typically, they don't fail on, but they do fail on. Usually, if they fail, they fail to an off position, but I can't tell you how many times we've encountered them failed in an on position. That's why they all say test monthly on them. Yeah. Right? The little push to test button, and they say you got to do it monthly. When was the last time you tested the GFIs in your house, Kelly? <laughs> um, due to the fact my kids like to touch the buttons, they get tested a lot. <laughs> okay. Well, that's but good. I have boys who are very, you know, adventurous. Yeah. And yeah. unfortunately, in an older house, the plugs are close to where they are. Yeah. Um, but in an average house, I don't think they really. I don't even think homeowners really know they have no. GFI. Right. Uh, plugs. Right. And and I know, you know, I mean, my house I'm in right now was built in 2006. So, uh, you know, it's certainly old enough that things are needing to be replaced and, and so forth. I've got GFI outlets in my kitchen. I don't know if I've ever tested them in what is that now? Almost going on 17 years. Okay. Uh, shame on me. Right. You're supposed to do it every 30 days. Right. Um, and and you're supposed to know to do that. And, and I do know to do it. I absolutely. Yeah, goals. absolutely do know to do it. But the, the, the point is that GFIs do fail. And when they do fail, it is possible they fail in a in an on position and people don't test them frequently. 
And uh, to me, that's why a GFI is not a primary source of, of protection, but the bonding wire and the bonding grid that's created around a swimming pool is. And the best way that I can try to describe what a bond is as compared to a ground is to liken it to a bird on a high power wire off of a power pole or a telephone pole somewhere. Birds sit on those wires all the time and they don't get electrocuted. Is there not current in that wire? No, there's current there. It's it's a live wire. It's an exposed wire. There's not even a casing on that wire to help protect that, that bird from being electrocuted. The reason the bird isn't electrocuted is there's zero potential to ground. So the bonding wire we're referring to is part of the equipotential bond of the pool. And that word equipotential is meaning equal all the way around. So the potential of ground is evened out because of that wire. So if we attach it when we're building a pool to everything metal in the pool, like Kelly said, the handrail, the ladder, the light can, the uh, if it's a metal light can, um, all of the equipment in the decking or under the decking, depending on what the decking is, if it's a concrete deck that has wire mesh in it, that wire mesh has to be bonded because current will go through concrete. If it's paver brick, there has to be a solid eight bonding wire run around the perimeter of the pool beneath the paver brick. Um, and actually, usually, uh, uh, I want to say two to three inches, depending on the thickness of the brick, within the bedding material underneath that paver brick to help provide this bonding grid. And what we're doing with it is protecting people. So if there's stray current somewhere and someone's swimming in the pool, the straight current can be in the pool. It could also be in the in around the pool. It could be a short coming back to the pool through the plumbing, through the pump or the heater or something crazy like that. That as they move around in the pool, touch different things in the pool or get out of the pool, right? Grab that handrail or that ladder to get out. The potential of everything surrounding the pool, whether it's the water they're bathed in, the, the handrail they're grabbing onto, the decking they're standing onto, the potential is all equal. And because of that, their body never provides that path to ground that causes people to be electrocuted. So it's, like I said, the bird on the wire. The wire is the bonding grid and everything it's associated with. And a bird can be on that wire anywhere. And if there's current present, they won't be harmed. The minute that that bond is removed and, and we see service and construction people do this often in, in different ways that create dangers then by it not being restored. A big one that we see for us is uh, there are a lot of pools that were built with aluminum anchors for ladders and handrails as opposed oh, wow. to bronze. And aluminum oxidizes horribly over time and be, and it, it ends up breaking and, and becoming useless. So people will come in and core drill a four-inch hole around each of those anchors all the way through the concrete. 
drop a new anchor in its place, pour some anchoring cement around it, and put the handrail or ladder back in, or slide, or you know whatever it is. The the anchor that the rail or or ladder was in had a bonding lug on it originally. The new one, in fact, even has a bonding lug on it as well, unless it's plastic. I'll talk about that in a second. But when they core drilled through that deck, they core drilled right through that wire, severing it. And almost never is there any concern about that new anchor, assuming it's a metal anchor, being reattached to that bonding grid. So what we've just done by doing that is created a path to ground. That anchor is usually resting down on the stone beneath the deck and the rails attached into it. And everything is wet around a pool, especially a handrail that people are using when they're wet getting in and out of the pool. So the water helps even further the conductivity. And if there's some sort of an electrical current in the pool, as soon as someone grabs onto that rail, it's now grounded with no bond. So there isn't equal potential to ground anymore. There is less potential to ground or greater potential to ground, I should say. Um, so if there's current in the water, that current's going through your body, you're a bird on the wire. The minute you grab that rail that is not bonded, that current goes through your body to that ground and you you get electrocuted and, and you know all kinds of bad things happen. So there are some anchors that are manufactured that are plastic. And if used with a plastic ladder or plastic rail for that purpose, there's no bonding that's needed. So only one manufacturer I'm aware of that makes them. Um, I'm not a huge fan of them. I don't really care for the look of them. To me, they kind of look a little cheap compared to some of the nicer, you know, especially some of the more uh, you know, in recent years, the, the handrails have gotten some decorative kind of flair to them, even from the you know, the conventional manufacturers, but so that, you know, bonding and that bond wire not only goes all the way around the pool through all those metals we're talking about, but goes all the way back to that same wire buried through the dirt back to the equipment and attaches to everything Kelly had mentioned, the heater, the, the pump motor, the, um, the, the electrical boxes, if they're metal, anything metal has a bonding lug on it that it all attaches to, because you can have a similar thing occurring at the equipment pad as well where you can have some stray current that, uh, um, you know, that bond wire is going to help protect us with. So, again, it's not grounding. Um, it's bonding, and it serves a different purpose. So if you followed through that long dissertation I just gave on <laughs> bonding, um, going back to my original comment about and electrical inspectors who see that bond wire at the equipment pad come out of dirt and go into the pump, the filter, the heater, the blah, 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 blah. And they go, you got to hook that up to a grounding rod. That's wrong because now you're taking a bond that is created to provide equipotential and you're attaching it to a grounding rod and turning it into a ground. So now that handrail that's in the cup that's grounded to that now ground wire becomes a positive point of grounding and creates a hazard that otherwise wouldn't exist, assuming everything were bonded properly. So 
back in the day, I would argue with electrical inspectors. I would pull out the code book and, and everything else, and they would stand there and say, I know. So all inspectors, uh, 30 <laughs> seconds, turn this off. Fast forward for 30 seconds or turn your volume way down. Years ago, someone told me that those who can do, those who can't inspect. <laughs> so, and and I found it to be true in all too many walks of life that uh, if, if you can do your job well, um, you're going to go out and do it and charge money for it and be successful at it. If you can't, but you have a little bit of an idea what you're supposed to be doing that you should have been making money at, you go and you work for the government somewhere telling other people you're smarter than them and you become an inspector. So not all inspectors. I know we've got a lot of great inspectors, uh, you know, especially dealing with with things that a lot of our CPOs deal with, with health department inspectors and that. There are a lot of great ones out there, but every once in a while. But there we are some. Them. I know I've had where I'm arguing with. Yeah, <laughs> like, no. yeah. Well, no, so we need to, no, I'm not going to do that because it's going to overchlorinate this pool. We, we have done this. And in fact, uh, I, I think we probably, it was probably a couple of years ago, the last time we had to do this. The inspector failed us because of just that. He said, you don't have a grounding rod at this equipment pad. So we went out and bought a grounding rod, drove it in to the ground at the equipment pad, hooked that bond wire up to it so that he would pass us. And then as soon as it was passed, we ground that grounding rod off below ground. We pulled that bond wire off of it and made it what it's supposed to be, according to the National Electric Code, yeah. um, a bond, not a ground. Now, what about when you go to a pool and you're taking out a pump that is attached to copper plumbing and it was, a, let's say, a brass pump? What do you do? I know the way I've been taught is you there's two options one if you have enough copper plumbing coming out of the ground you can take a bonding clamp and attach a bond wire to that and then go to the pump or you can dig a hole that gives you access to the plumbing where the can't remember the name of it i'm so sorry people but it has a piece of copper in it that's x amount of inches or centimeters but where it will be in the water constantly so that it rebonds everything because now that we have our pumps that are no longer you we use pvc and all of that we want to make sure everything's bonded this is mainly in old neighborhoods where, yeah, it's, yeah. They, they have, it's an old pool. They didn't need a bonding, from my understanding, they didn't need a bonding wire because it was copper plumbing all the way to the equipment. Um, uh, well, ultimately, you, you, you need to bond that metal pipe. Yeah. Um, and that even goes, you know, years ago, it was common to have plumbers put, stubs of galvanized pipe off of a heater with a cast iron header mm -hmm. um, before then going to plastic when, you know, transitioning. And, uh, you know, when done properly, those galvanized pipes would have a bonding lug that was tacked, spot welded onto that galvanized pipe. There, there are bonding clamps that you can get to go around copper pipe. Um, it's, it's, it's a brass two-piece assembly 
that, Do you know how hard um, those are to get? And they're not cheap. No. Well, actually, but, they're not too bad. I got four for 40 bucks. Yeah. And But I had to have them transferred in because right. no one in my area had it. And I put a pump in with copper plumbing and a brass mm-hmm. pump. But now that that pump's no longer there and it's not copper plumbing going into the pump, I had, I had to find an alternative mm-hmm. to bond that pool. Well, the, the copper pipe itself has to be bonded back to the rest of the bonding grid. And if, if you can't, you know, like you, you're like you're saying, if the pipe is in the ground and you're separating it at the equipment and running PVC to the pump or someone has done that prior, you you can never assume that it's copper all the way back to the pool. There's there's no way to do that. But that copper pipe that you're encountering it needs to have a bond wire attached to it and a bonding clamp is is really the way to do it i have seen people do things that are not proper like take a stainless clamp wrap it around the pipe and put the bond wire under that oh god no. that's that's not <laughs> that's an acceptable bond purpose. um but it does it does need to be bonded um and see i have gone to a lot of pools where they they are the these older pools that that's what they did was copper plumbing because it was, mm-hmm. you know, what built probably in the 60s. Sure. Um, but these people, they'll put the pumps in and they won't think of the bond wire because mm-hmm. there was never there was never a bond wire there. Right. And right. I it, okay for me, because I see so many times where pools at the equipment aren't properly bonded. That's one of my pet peeves. Like that is my go to first thing I look at. Like, even when I go to warranties, first thing I look at is if there's a bond wire. If there's not a bond wire, sorry, you owe me $135. You need to come install this correctly. Right. Well, you know, and and to that point, too, even beyond the safety aspect of what we're talking about that the bonding wire provides, um, modern day heaters today, the heaters that everyone does, the style everyone is using, like the Pentair Master Temp, uh, Hayward's new one they came out with, what, two or three years ago now? Oh, Same. yeah, the low the low footprint HC the, series. Right. Uh, Jandy's, I don't know what they're calling it now, or, or Freedra. JXI it was. Yeah, JXI. I think it, they may have changed, maybe they didn't change the name. Raypack came out with theirs maybe a year ago. So these heaters, with all that's going on inside of them by design, have the potential of stray current causing the heat exchangers to be compromised and leak. Mm-hmm. Yep. And if the heater isn't bonded, that's actually a pretty high occurrence that you have heat exchanger failures because of stray voltage. Um so, you know, looking at it from a safety aspect, certainly everything is even by bonded, but the the heaters today, if they're not bonded, odds are you're going to have a heat exchanger leaking in a relatively short period of time. You know, well, even that. lights, the, the metal ring will turn black if the pool's not properly bonded. Yeah, or sometimes we can even see that the bonding of certain things causes plating of metals because of that bond, too. But um, it, it's, you know, the... What was the other thing that I ran into? And and again, I've been 30 whatever years doing this and had never known this aspect of things. Most gas companies across the country apply current to the gas pipes in their system, in the ground, et cetera, 
to help prevent corrosion. Hmm. It's a, if I remember correctly, it's a DC current that gets applied and throughout the system, they have these anodes that are used and, and somehow between it, it helps to reduce or prevent corrosion of their metal pipes that are in the ground. So if you're in older areas where the pipes are all metal up to the house, you know, modern day constructioners, uh, plastic is commonly mm -hmm. used by the gas companies, but in older areas, it's all metal pipe to the house, to the metal gas meter on the house. And if you have a metal pipe going from there to your pool heater, that straight current through that gas pipe can cause damage to the heater, specifically the heat exchanger, because of the, the same kind of thing going on. Now, that current can be so excessive that even having a proper bond wire on the heater doesn't protect it. So those of you that aren't familiar with, there are gas pipe unions that are made that are dielectric unions. And basically was where the two pieces of union go together. There's like a, I'm going to say a rubber gasket in there. So when it's tightened up, the metal doesn't, isn't continuous. The inside of the nut has a sleeve inside of it, so the, there's no metal on metal there. And where the two pieces of the union form the actual seal internally, there's a gasket in there. So if there's current coming in from the gas company, that dielectric union stops the current at that point from ever getting to the heater. So, you know, the, the aspect of electricity and bonding and, and all these different things have a lot of different reasons to them. Bonding primarily is safety, but in today's world, it has other reasons that it needs to be too. <clears throat> so we, we just, after running into that, we just bought, uh, you know, I forget how many dielectric, three quarter inch dielectric unions. And we're using those on all of our heater installations now, unless we can prove that there's plastic in the gas feed before our heater, just uh -huh. to prevent this this kind of damage from happening. They're they're not much more. I found them online, and if if we're paying, I want to say it was six to seven dollars for a, a standard black pipe three quarter inch union. I think these were like eight for a dielectric one. That's interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't either. And and honestly, we so what what happened was we encountered heaters on pools that we built having heat exchanger failures when they were two to three years old. Oh, and wow. we maintain these pools and have records of our water balance being perfect. The heater was bonded, all this other stuff. And and working with the manufacturer, there was eventually someone that remembered some old timer at the manufacturer saying, you know what, this occurred. And, and when they eventually got a dielectric union put in there, uh, in that instance that was described to me, they were having exchanger failures every year. Oh, wow. And threw a dielectric union in there. And that was, you know, eight, nine years ago, and it's never failed since. And prior to that, they put in three or four heaters year after year after year. So anyway, something else to think about if you if you have nothing but steel 
And it's got to be an older area. Like I said, where we're at in Chicago, newer subdivisions being built. And, and <clears throat> as I researched it through our local gas company and people I know there, it seems that sometime in, in the mid-90s is when in our area most gas pipe feeds from NICOR, our gas company, were, were changed over to plastic. Okay. But there are all kinds of pools out there built before the 90s. And in the old style heaters wasn't an issue. It's only, and I don't know why these new style heaters cause it. Um, I think there's just so much going on with <clears throat> the flame, its proximity to the heat exchanger, and so much electrical going on inside the heater with the blowers and the circuitry and everything else that it just becomes a a, a magnet of sorts for these kinds of anomalies. Now, that's, now, I think it's a good thing like you pointed out, a lot of places, you know, in my area, there's a lot of newer developments. They don't, we don't have to worry about them. Well, you'd hope, but they're going to have the bond wires. They're going to have everything because there's so many inspections in that process of building a pool. But you need to know about how things used to be done and how you have to adapt them to current code with electrical for these older pools. Yeah, you know, GFIs weren't a thing. No. 50 years ago. So, um, you know, you run into that all the time. I, uh, I uh, mentioned, I think, to you earlier that um, our technicians are supposed to look at the circuit breakers whenever we're replacing a piece of equipment to verify that the equipment is on a proper breaker, that it's a GFI breaker if it's supposed to be a GFI breaker. Um the uh, and and the electrical, you know, making sure it's bonded, making sure it's it's all this other stuff. I mean, bonding has been a thing for a long, long time, but as things get older and things get swapped out over and over and over, and you know, you have a house where it was a, a do-it-yourselfer lived there for a decade, and and then someone else buys it that's not a do-it-yourselfer, and you find all kinds of you know craziness going on that they they just didn't know that problems are creating by eliminating some of these things that are supposed to be used. Well, and then when you are upgrading these systems, you need to know how many amps can actually go to the new box. You know, what size wire, and this kind of leads to what we'll talk about next week. What size yep. wire do you need to come into the box to be able to handle what you're putting in there? Um, I know in California, my contractor's license doesn't allow me to touch the main box. So I need an electrician to help me with that. Mm -hmm. That's fine with me because I don't like touching the main box. It's just <laughs> a little too much power for me. Um, you also need to know, like, if there's a fire that happens in that box, it has to be replaced because it's no longer safe. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot that you need to know to be safe. And right. you need to know what to do when you find these things that aren't safe. I've had to lock people out of the electrical to their pool equipment because of electrical fires. Somebody came in before me, makeshift a way to make it work. But again, there was a fire in the box. The box is no longer safe. It has to be replaced. Yeah. So, so know those things. Have the right tools. Know what colors the wire should be. Um, and again, if you don't feel comfortable... That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. That's, I didn't that's... feel comfortable at first either. <clears throat> nope. And I did, so, and I was stupid because I did. 
<laughs> so. so ask people around you, you know, that's where IPSA comes in handy, where you go to chapter meetings, you listen to people talk, you get to know who knows what they're doing and not. And a lot of times they'll help you out. Um, PHTA, any trade yep. association, really, that, that helps out. You can talk to distribution. So I would not just ask someone randomly. I'd actually ask the counter people like, hey, who do you think actually knows something? before so you don't get taught the wrong way but definitely don't touch anything you're not comfortable with yep be safe so next week we will be talking about wiring and breakers and you're all going to be um quizzed after that episode we should do that we should put a quiz out there right we should and then we should give something away okay so give us give us a week. We'll figure out something. But yeah, we will. How about at the end? Of, this is a this is going to be a four part series, so four episodes, because we want to make sure that we give you as much information as possible, but we don't want to overload you. Yeah. Um. My grandfather, on my mom's side, was a teacher, and he said that honestly, you only retain 50, the first fifteen minutes of a class. Oh, and we just screwed everyone listening to this thing. Just <laughs> blew that all to hell. Hey, at least we're not going through it all in one episode. Where was your right? grandfather when we started this episode? Oh, shit. <laughs> Sorry. But, yeah, we just don't want to overload you. So this will be a four-part series. Today was safety. Next week we'll be wiring breakers. And then you'll find out after we talk about next week what comes after that. And we will come up with a quiz for you guys that will enter you to win something. We will come up with something by next week. Perfect. So thank you for listening again. Please like us, share us, download us. Uh, so we know that you're listening. If you ever have questions, concerns, just want to shoot us a thank you or tell us how we helped you go to either the pool talking pools pool group, or you can email us at talkingpools at gmail.com. Um, all resources that we come up with, we will put on the pool group when this episode airs and we'll try to come up with maybe a couple, you know, pictures where we can point out things like this is a breaker. This is the, the, the ground bar. This is the neutral bars, just so you can kind of understand what we were talking about. So and then, then you can look at the pictures and go listen to this episode all over again. Yeah. So you're really prepared for that. Oh, my God. My kid is so creepy. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, Anywho. So thank you for listening. And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe. Bye. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to our episode this week. I hope you enjoyed it. I did want to let all the ladies know that we're having our upcoming Pool Girl Pro all women's training, and it will be in Folsom, California, February 10th at noon. We will be going over how to wire automation and programming on the top automation systems we see. This class will be taught by myself and fellow member Deb Martin. If you're unable to attend in person, no problem. We stream it via Zoom as well. Just go to our Facebook group, PGP Industry Training Group, or you can email the podcast at talkingpools at gmail.com for more information. 
I can't wait to see all the ladies there. I just wanted to take a minute to say thank you for listening today. I'm hoping you enjoyed the episode as much as we enjoyed putting it together for you. Listen, it's been a couple of wacky, crazy, screwed up years from pandemic to Poolmageddon. I just want you to know that we are all in this together. If there's anything that we can do for you, send me an email at talkingpools at gmail.com. Again, that's talkingpools at gmail.com. We're here. This is your podcast. We are the Pool People's Podcast of the Pool People for the Pool People by the Pool People's Podcast. This one is about you. So thank you for tuning in and listening. Do me a favor. Click subscribe before you go. That way you don't miss an episode. 